0: Hello, and welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast, where together we explore ways to help you optimize your health and achieve sustainable well-being. No one deserves to live an unhealthy life because they are overtasked, overstimulated, and overwhelmed. I'm your co-host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and we'll be joined by Dr. Parker Hayes as we explore new perspectives and strategies rooted in self-awareness, deep connections, and science-based practices designed to create lasting impact for you and those around you. Please keep in mind this podcast is for the purpose of education, introspection, and community connection and should not be mistaken for medical advice. Be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together.
1: Welcome to Lasting Impact Wellness, the podcast that helps you optimize your health and well-being through science-based practices, practical knowledge, and honest discussions. I'm your host today, Dr. Parker Hayes. This is part two of our podcast on neurodegenerative disease with Dr. Eric Ensrud. This episode is particularly critical as, yes, we will continue to learn about important diseases such as MS and ALS, but we will devote real time to the factors that we can control that may decrease our risk of getting neurodegenerative disease in the first place or modify our course if we are indeed diagnosed. If you have not listened to part one, this episode may stand alone with value, but I encourage you to go back and listen to the first part for some more complete understanding of this profound group of disorders and our personal role in their prevention or modification. Eric, I'd like to pivot a bit and talk about two other diseases if we could. And I know these are more central to your daily practice and career and lifetime of expertise. Starting first with ALS or Amyotrophic Lateral Sclerosis. Tell us what that is. Most people have heard of Lou Gehrig's disease or that moniker. Tell us more about that.
0: Yeah. So ALS is a progressive degenerative disease of two very unique sets of nerve cells in your brain and spinal cord. They are the main or primary pathway for movement and contraction of muscles. And they're very unique in that they're very, very long microscopic cells. They're divided into two sets. One is called the upper motor neuron cells, and they go from the surface of your brain in the motor area to the spinal cord and then a the second set of cells goes from your spinal cord out to the muscles. And these cells are under a lot of metabolic stress because energy and proteins and so on are developed in the nucleus of the cell, and they have to be transported along the length of that cell. And these cells go for several feet. If you think about a cell, your spinal cord, you know, above your belt, that cell, that microscopic cell would go all the way out to your foot, for example. So to have this disease, it seems like it's a common end pathway. You need to have involvement of the upper motor neuron cells and the lower motor neuron cells, and then they progress and they cause symptoms like stiffness or spasticity. They can cause weakness, atrophy of muscles. They can cause problems with things that we don't really think about are very complicated motor functions like speech and swallowing. And they can eventually cause problems with the motor cells that go to the diaphragm. And that's what makes them a dangerous disease.
1: Would you characterize ALS as rare?
0: Yeah, it's, it's not common. About one out of every 50,000 Americans get it a year yeah. and about, you know, in any given year, about two to three Americans per 50,000 have it. It's I would say it's still underrecognized, although there's been more awareness of it. I'm sure there are many listeners who may even have participated a few years back in the ALS bucket challenge, where as a fundraiser, people were pouring ice cold water over their head, which actually started in the Boston area with the patient there, and that became such an amazing fundraiser for the main patient organization, the ALS Association, they raised hundreds of millions of dollars with that challenge. And then it really kind of kickstarted research in ALS and um, awareness of ALS. So we have really changed this disease from, it's often a devastating disease, but not always in the last few years, it's gone from an almost untreatable disease to a treatable disease. And we now have four agents to treat it. Uh, We don't have a cure for ALS in 2023, but we don't also don't know, you know, when they do a trial, Parker, you were talking about the difficulty of doing, you know, trials of agents and research and agents or, or, or drugs. And they only look at one at a time. So we don't know what'll happen when we give a patient, like we have an algorithm or a system set up where someone's diagnosed with ALS. How to try and get them as fast as possible on all four of these treatments and we don't know what the effect of all four at once will be versus being on one or the other
1: so we're talking about a devastating disease and it at times i'm sure there are plenty of people with the disease or at concern for it as a diagnosis who are hopefully willing to be a part of these trials because the alternative is so ominous.
0: Yes, yes, they definitely are. As someone that I was a mentor for and hired in her first job, she recently published a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine, a positive trial for the newest agent in ALS. So we are seeing some progress, but it is uh, definitely a, a very devastating disease, yeah.
1: What's the age of onset or diagnosis for ALS? And can you place that in contrast with the previous two disease entities we've talked about? Yeah. So A-
0: ALS actually is pretty similar in age of onset. It's usually persons over 60. I diagnosed uh, someone yesterday in clinic with it who was 34. And, uh, you know, there are people who get it in their 20s, but it tends to be something that occurs in people i would say around the age they become eligible for medicare or later but it definitely can occur in the 40s and 50s as well
1: yeah multiple sclerosis tell us a little bit about that a definition and uh, perhaps the prevalence and global impact after that yeah so multiple
0: sclerosis is a neurodegenerative disease it's unique from the other diseases we've discussed that it's an autoimmune disease. So your immune system mistakes myelin, that's the covering on your brain and spinal cord nerves from a foreign nerve for a foreign substance. If you look at an electrical cord, you'll know that there's a wire in the center and then there's plastic around the outside to insulate that. And myelin is like the plastic on the outside of an electrical cord and you're immune system mistakes that as a foreign substance, and then your own immune system attacks it on a periodic or intermittent or sometimes chronic basis. And that can be difficult to uh, diagnose as well, because it can really affect any sensory or visual or motor function. They're all served by pathways in the brain that are covered with this substance myelin. Some more common things are sudden cloudiness of the vision. Uh, that's painful, especially with eye that's something called optic neuritis and we have to remember in MS that things go along a timeline of inflammation and it's the same sort of inflammation that you might get. If you, uh, smashed your finger or, uh, had, you know, inflammation from an infection, so the numbness comes on over hours to a day and it lasts for days to weeks. When it's from MS, you can get stiffness or weakness, usually of the legs more than the arms. You can get very significant unsteadiness or nausea. And again, you know, that time aspect of it is is very important because you get something gets inflamed and then it tends to resolve. So MS affects younger people. It's primarily a disease of younger women. It's about three to one women to men. There are different forms that have different progressions or lack of progression. The major risk of MS in terms that we're able to determine is sunlight exposure or vitamin D levels during a real important time of period when you're in junior high or high school. So the farther you are from the equator, the higher your risk for developing MS during that period, junior high or high school. That seems to be very important in like in the development of your immune system, how much sunlight and vitamin D exposure you get during that period. So there's some relative genetic risk, but MS is is generally not an inherited disease. And and so these immune cells, again, they mistake the myelin for a foreign substance and it can become chronic that they keep doing that. I, I will say for MS, I've been a neurologist now since I guess almost 30 years. And when I started, this was a very, very difficult disease that usually became chronic. We didn't have very effective medications for it. I remember was working in Boston and we'd go to a nursing home in Dorchester, which is the area of Boston, kind of famous for movies like Gone Baby Gone. And The entire nursing home was full of people who had chronic multiple sclerosis. Well, because of advances in treating multiple sclerosis that continue to explode this year and beyond, the treatments are so much more effective. Multiple sclerosis has now become really a treatable disease, almost like diabetes. We just very rarely see people going on to develop the type of severe outcomes that used to be very common.
1: That's another general concept that we talk about a lot in lasting impact is that if you can reduce your risk of decline for the long term, you might live long enough to avail yourself of very significant advances in technology and in medicine. But assuming that there will be no hope for untreatable diseases in the future is folly one should not engage in risky behaviors or uh, feel fatalistic about things because you and I could list tens of diseases that are significantly treatable today that we could do very little for in the early parts of our careers.
0: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Even as we struggle with getting more effective treatments for some of these diseases like Alzheimer's, So why did I decide to do two residencies in neurology and physical medicine rehabilitation because these training periods after medical school, they've tempered somewhat with, you only have to work 80 hours a week now and so on. But there used to be no time limits and they were pretty brutal. I'm sure you can attest to that Parker, but I thought neurology was so interesting, the nervous system, it's so complicated and it was so interesting, but We were just telling people what they had and not doing a lot for them. And physical medicine and rehabilitation is working to make people more functional despite their deficits. And it's really changed. Like, even in neurology, this very difficult area, the advances in treatment in many diseases, unfortunately, not all yet, are are just profound. Like now, if I start a patient with MS on a new agent, I always tell them, you know, you're not going to be on this for your life because we're going to have something even more effective with even less side effects. And when we talk about ALS, there's a form of, of, of a disease that affects the same group of cells, the motor nerve cells. It's called spinal muscular atrophy. And it's like ALS in many cases of a newborn. I was involved many times at Children's Hospital of Boston of giving this diagnosis to parents of a newborn child that wasn't moving well. And it inevitably resulted in death before the age of one. You know, very difficult thing for everyone. Devastating. Now there's a genetic therapy that was developed to replace uh, the gene that's missing for that. It's very treatable because it's one specific gene and we're we're not sure about the long-term outcome because it hasn't been available yet but i saw a three-year-old a couple of weeks ago in our muscular dystrophy association clinic who got that gene therapy shortly after birth and at three years old the kid looks entirely normal this is a formerly fatal disease within a few months of birth and he's jumping around the wall and creating chaos in an exam room like a three-year-old should. It's just amazing. So I, I appreciate you pointing out that we should have, and not just in neurology, but in all areas of medicine, there really are a lot of remarkable advances that have happened. And more importantly, that are yet to come.
1: Perhaps we could expand to other preventative approaches then to wrap some of these This fantastic discussion of neurodegenerative disorders.
0: Okay. So in addition to reduced physical exercise, other risk factors include diet, uh, a lack of adequate mental stimulation and adequate activities. There's some evidence for alcohol as a risk factor. There's quite a bit of evidence developing for inadequate sleep as a risk factor. And then there's also quite a bit of evidence for social networks, social engagement as being a risk factor.
1: Perhaps you could expound on some of those for us. Yeah. So, you know, if we back up to diet, these
0: studies are difficult due to the need to follow diet closely in the light of studies. But there certainly is quite a bit of evidence that diet modifications are important associated with improved vascular health and can really affect brain health. It's important to realize that your brain uses more energy than any organ in the body. It uses about 20% of all your energy. So how does that energy get to your brain? It gets there via blood. So there are extensive network of blood vessels, both large ones and small ones that go into the brain and deliver all that energy. So things that affect your vascular health and diet is, of course, really the major one. We know that diet modifications are associated with improved vascular health and can affect brain health significantly. It appears that a diet known as a mind diet is really the most effective For that, and the MIND diet is a combination of a Mediterranean style diet and something that was originally known as DASH or D-A-S-H, and that's a low sodium diet, and that includes things like green leafy vegetables, berries, nuts, olive oils, whole grain, fish and seafood beans, and poultry. So it's not actually, for example, a vegan diet, not that a vegan diet couldn't be helpful, Uh, for, for vascular health, that's very important. Another thing is mental stimulation and cognitive activities. There was a really landmark study in 1964 by a neuroscientist, Marion Diamond in California, she was the first to show that the effective environment, this was on rats, rats that were put in plain cages without any stimulating environment or rats that were put in large cages with lots of things for them to do and explore that it had a profound effect on the thickness of the brain and weight of the brain. And the evidence in that area has just continued to explode since then. But I'd I'd like to point that out as the landmark study. And then there is some evidence on alcohol that even moderate alcohol use can accelerate the changes found in Alzheimer's disease from February of this year. There was a study that showed that two drinks or less a day for men and one drink or less a day for women can affect the brain and can accelerate Alzheimer's disease progression, that it would accelerate the loss of brain cells and increase the number of amyloid plaques. So the team concluded in that study that alcohol consumption can be a modifiable risk factor. Sleep is another factor. That gets a lot of attention now. There was a landmark study in 2020, uh, the largest one was in Europe that looked at almost 8,000 people and found that consistently sleeping less than six hours a night at ages in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was associated with a 30% increase in dementia risk compared to sleeping seven hours or more. There's been a lot of evidence on the role of social engagement and support networks, and that can be things like remaining socially connected, having close friends, being married or having a significant other. All those can have risk reduction. Something that we get concerned about these days because our kind of emphasis on devices rather than actual social interaction is really reducing how much we interact with other people. I'm working on a talk called Left to Their Own Devices. And that came up from seeing people sitting together, seeing kids in my neighborhood as I drive to work, waiting for the bus, and they're not talking to each other. They're all staring at their phones. And in terms of enlarging social networks, there was a really remarkable study that came out this summer in July from UC Davis. You think about ways that you could interact with other people. And this study was on volunteering. And does that protect the brain against cognitive decline and dementia? And it was a study of older adults that found better memory and executive function. And executive function is things like organization and regulation among those who volunteered. And so they followed these patients or participants over about, 14 months, and that people who volunteered had a significantly less decline in their cognition or brain function over that time.
1: That is very exciting. I mean, turning off your screen and doing something kind for your fellow man might help you prevent dementia. That that sounds pretty good, speaking as a parent and uh, speaking as a citizen. Yeah, I'll give the link to that study. It was presented at a meeting. The paper hasn't come out
0: yet. That's the way things were. The presentations are at meetings before the publication, but it was a huge study. It looked at almost 2,500 adults. Also, emotional well-being and stress management is important because sometimes we underemphasize how much anxiety affects our brain function. It really decreases our focus. It makes it more difficult for us to lay down memory,
1: and it makes it more difficult for us to retrieve memory. Does that likely go for depression as well, as you mentioned earlier in the discussion? Absolutely. I'm
0: glad you point that out. Depression in particular has profound effects on
1: memory. So how about any particular promising areas beyond that in terms of uh, mitigating risk or risk factors, if you will. So we've got so far social and environmental factors, alcohol, healthy diet, uh, the benefits of exercise. What do you think is around the corner? Well, I actually think that the most likely thing is that we're going to find more
0: strong evidence and more maybe directed evidence or more specific evidence about how we can lessen our risk for dementia with exercise and diet. I think there are likely some more effective medications coming, but if we're waiting for that pill for cognition, I think we're probably have expectations that aren't realistic. Yeah. I, I I think it's going to be more directed,
1: more evidence, more advice for
0: how we can reduce our risk with what we do
1: truly a take-home message for me from what you've said thus far is that we can do more for ourselves than medicine or doctors might be able to do for us at least currently and that certainly is not the same as we are devoid of treatment options and that the involvement of healthcare professionals is necessary throughout the process but forgive me the locus of control Yes. Is that your phrase? If yeah. we accept the responsibility of having the locus of control within ourselves, then psychologically that that puts us in the driver's seat. We're ready to mitigate our own risk and make choices now that will have positive effects for us and those around us later. Yeah. And it 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 has a really
0: strong effect on depression and the likelihood of developing depression. And it's not that we just can do things for ourselves, is that we can do very effective things for ourselves.
1: What is the current research on potential medications and treatments? Does it mean something that, for example, Cornell has an actual Alzheimer's prevention clinic, but there are few others? Talk to us a little bit about how major insurers treat these issues and and tell us about the the current landscape in terms of prevention, potential medications and treatments. Yeah. I
0: I think it says a lot that these, you know, why don't we have more Alzheimer's prevention clinics, for example, wouldn't that be a great thing? Well, it would be a great thing. I think, uh, you know, it's a real problem that most major insurers don't want to pay for preventative care. Why should we pay for you to have a visit for something you don't have yet? I'm saying that from their perspective, not from my perspective. But in some medical systems that plan to keep the patient for the remainder of their life, for example, the VA system, which certainly has some liabilities like any system, the VA system does a much better job of prevention in diseases. They give a lot more effort and resources to, for example, dementia prevention and diabetes prevention than private insurers do.
1: And you think inherent to that is the fact that they keep those patients.
0: And yes, that they keep those patients because why should I pay for something in a private insurance when you may switch your insurance company next year? They don't really have that long-term commitment to the patients. Yeah. Yeah. That's my take on it.
1: Really a terrific discussion. Maybe we could conclude with a recap of some of the key points discussed in our podcast thus far. If you would, can I put you on the spot to give a summary of the major diseases and impact and prevalence, and then maybe talk about, in sweeping terms, an overview of the major risk factors for their development, prevention, and and give us a forward-looking view. Yeah, so we talked about
0: Alzheimer's disease, which is a progressive change in thinking to the extent that it interferes with your daily activities of life. And that affects about 6 million people in the U.S. in a year. We talked about Parkinson's disease, which is a abnormality of movement, either less movement, which is a negative symptom or excessive movement like tremor. And that affects about a million people a year. We talked about uh, ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease, a third neurodegenerative disease that affects just the motor system. We talked about multiple sclerosis, which is an autoimmune autoimmune disease, which can affect many different uh, systems in the brain because they're all covered, the uh, pathways, by something called myelin, which your immune system Misrecognizes as being foreign and attacks. And we talked about that there are really things that you can do. And I would even extend this to some extent to those last two diseases, ALS. For example, we used to, it used to be common that ALS patients were told just sit and rest, don't do anything. That'll be the best for you and MS patients as well. My chair in Boston, my immediate boss did a a groundbreaking study in ALS where they looked at groups of mice that had ALS and the groups that did the worst were the mice that didn't exercise at all or the mice that exercised excessively because it's taxing on that system. But the group that did the best were the people that exercise somewhat uh, moderate exercise, so we do now, for example, encourage ALS patients to exercise. I was part of a systematic review. At the University of Oregon, that was funded by the federal government to look at the effect of exercise and MS, and that was very positive. So, all of these diseases, what can you do to affect your brain health and brain aging? I would to try and sum it up I'd say try and get more socially connected. And by socially connected, I'm sorry, but I don't mean like Instagram. And Facebook, I mean, in person, find somewhere to volunteer in particular from that exciting study from July, exercise, find an activity or activities you enjoy and prioritize making a habit. I would add that something that I've seen become very helpful is consider finding, because we're all going to age, right? We can't avoid that. Uh, Consider finding someone older than you who's remaining active to be a friend and role model. For you to remain active you know give you an example of someone who's active as they age think about eating better a more comprehensive diet like the mind diet or just eating less processed food consider to some extent reducing your alcohol consumption try to prioritize sleep and intentional relaxation and then that simple adage like use it or lose it Just because you're older doesn't mean you can't learn learn something new or use your brain, which is very helpful. So consider activities using your brain. Cards are actually a good cognitive um, thing. I had a long conversation with the mother of a longtime friend recently who plays bridge in over about an hour conversation with her. I was like, wow, she's doing great. And I, I would attribute at least part of that, that she's a very avid bridge player. Consider doing something you enjoy, which requires thinking like mechanics or home improvement. You, know, you don't have to do crosswords, but those are helpful. Something like Sudoku, knitting,
1: arts and crafts, etc. Fantastic. I'm wearing my choir robe right now as you yeah. preach on. Tell us about some resources or further information for those interested in learning more.
0: Yeah, well, you can
1: find I great information on the internet. Definitely,
0: uh, just everyone be aware, you can find some crazy information on the internet as well. I think for Alzheimer's disease, the patient association, the Alzheimer's association is very helpful. Uh, For Parkinson's, there are multiple organizations, something called the Parkinson's Foundation has some great information. And then I've provided the actual multiple papers that we referenced in this talk and I know that you all uh, make them available uh, some of the studies that looked at these things. if people want to dive dive deeper. and I would actually reference your podcast because this is the type of things. having listened to your episodes, these are the types of things that you're really emphasizing.
1: I can't thank you enough for taking so much of your time uh, to talk with our listeners and to further our collective thought about tremendously impactful disease entities uh, by any stretch among the top few leading causes of death and that is not the only measure of devastation but i also feel buoyed by the discussion that there are things we can do today to reduce our risk and that there are hopeful directions in which we may sail when it comes to treatment Dr. Ensrud, I am uh, just thrilled to have spoken with you today, and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It was my pleasure, and I look forward to listening and learning more from your podcast. At Lasting Impact Wellness, we reject the notion that the trajectory of our health and well-being cannot be changed. Please connect with us, and let's partner together for you or your organization. Use the community link in the show notes, or please visit us on the web at lastingimpactwellness.com and click community. Even better, drop us a line at info at to suggest topics or guests for the podcast. On Instagram, we are at lastingimpactwellness. We ask that you download, subscribe to our podcast, and please rate it highly. Most of all, find a person to share it with to increase their well-being too. As always, thank you for your time and your energy. I'm Dr. Parker Hayes. Let's be well together.